Welcome to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, a place for healing and hope for couples impacted by betrayal resulting from infidelity and or sex addiction. Your hosts are Marnie Breaker and Dwayne Osterland, licensed marriage and family therapists, certified sex addiction therapists, and founders of respective treatment centers in Long Beach, Los Angeles, and San Diego, California. Marnie and Dwayne co-created Helping Couples Heal, a comprehensive program for couples recovering from betrayal trauma, including an in-person two-day workshop, an online aftercare program, and this podcast series is the first component of the program. Thank you for listening. Marnie and Dwayne are committed to helping you recover from the devastating impact of betrayal trauma and are honored to support you wherever you may be in your healing. If you've lost hope, you've come to the right place. Now, take a slow, deep breath. And let's begin with the Helping Couples Heal podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Helping Couples Heal podcast. This is Marnie, and I'm here with my co-host, Dwayne Osterland. And we have today a really special guest, and we've been trying to coordinate this interview for, I think, close to a year now. So it's a real pleasure for us to be able to welcome our guest today. Ted Bunch is the Chief Development Officer of A Call to Men and is internationally recognized for his efforts to prevent violence against women while promoting a healthy, respectful manhood. And we feel that this topic, which we're going to really dive into this morning with Ted, is so crucial in understanding so many of the dynamics that we see around betrayal trauma and sex addiction, as well as helping couples heal from the impact of betrayal. So what we would love to do is, Ted, just give you the opportunity to introduce yourself and tell us a bit more. Your bio is so impressive. I would not do it justice if I attempted to do so. Yes. Well, thank you, Marnie, and thank you, Dwayne, so much for this opportunity. We appreciate you using your influence and platform to amplify the work of A Call to Men. I'm, uh, as you mentioned, the chief development officer, but also a co-founder of the organization. I founded the organization 20 years ago now. We're in our 21st year. Wow, that's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. With uh, Tony Porter, who is the CEO, and I know you all are familiar with Tony's TED Talk, but I would make a plug for anyone who's... Uh, any man or uh, male-identified person that um, his TED Talk is only 11 minutes long and it's just very impactful. Um, actually, GQ magazine said it was one of the top 10 TED Talks every man should see, and I would agree with that. So it I want to know what the other nine are. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they're also very good. Uh, this was in 2016. GQ magazine said that, and. His TED Talk was actually done in 2010. This was when TED was just really establishing itself. But even now, it's still very relevant. Like everything still speaks very much. You wouldn't know it except for the pixelation in the video because technology has gone so far. You wouldn't know that it was 12 years ago now. So the good news is that a lot of people are still watching it. It's probably got 5 million views. But the challenge is that his message or our message at a call to men around promoting healthy manhood, uh, um, preventing gender-based violence, all of those things are still, we're facing the same challenges we faced back then. And uh, so our work continues to be very important. We continue to try to cut the edge, but it's also needed more now than ever. Yes, absolutely. And I'm just so excited you're here. And we use that video with a lot of our clients to introduce the topic of healthy manhood and to look at the man box. And so I would love to just start to jump in and tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. Well, so thanks for bringing that up. You know, the man box is a term that we coined, oh, before we founded the organization. Actually, the organization was founded on the man box, on our knowing that we needed to spread this message. And Tony was the original visionary for the organization, and the man box was uh, an important part of our work then and now. And we know that as we increase and promote a healthy, respectful, loving manhood, we also decrease and prevent domestic violence, sexual assault, bullying, homophobia, uh, gun violence, Many social ills, death by suicide for men, anxiety and depression goes down. All of these things are connected, as I'm sure we'll unpack some today, that the pain, the trauma is all connected, that men experience hurt people, hurt people. We know that, but also healed people can heal people. So the work of A Call to Men was really born out of actually the battered women's movement. 
Tony and I both uh, worked um, in domestic violence programs prior to establishing a call to men, uh, knowing that while the overwhelming majority of violence against women and girls was men's violence, the overwhelming majority of men were not violent, but we were silent about those that were. And that was as much of the problem, if not more, than the violence and abuse, because those men can only do those things because we didn't say anything about it. And our silence is as much of the problem as the violence and abuse is. So we said to ourselves, wait a minute, let's speak to the silence. Let's speak to the majority of men who believe we're doing the right thing, right? Because we are in our personal lives, but just in our personal lives, right? We're not really- Yeah, in, absolutely. We're not so concerned with the community of women outside of our family because other men are supposed to take care of those women. And if they're not doing that, right, patriarchy, and if they're not doing that, then it's not us, you know, we're not falling short, they are. So we connect all of those dots in the harmful messages and teachings that patriarchy create, not only for women and girls and gender non-binary folks and queer folks, but also for men and boys. So that's really where our work was born out of, wanting to go upstream to prevention, to stop these things from happening, and also knowing that all of the issues that I just mentioned are tied to what manhood and masculinity looks like for us, right? The man box teaches us to be tough, don't ask for help, be aggressive, be dominant, be in control, don't show any emotion except for anger, right? And lust, right? Right. Because we can express anger, and then we can also express lust when she walks by saying to the other man, oh man, I'd like to X, Y, and Z, that mm -hmm. you can do, right? Because one of the ways that this socialization shows up is that men bond with each other at the expense of women, like yes. that sexual harassment as she walks down the street or in the bar or at work. All of these things are connected. So we like to unpack it while being really clear that this is not about indicting men for being men, right? It's not an indictment of manhood, but an invitation and it's not about calling a man out, but about calling men in, because we're all guilty of it in one way or another. We're all guilty of a number of things to the man box, and then I'll turn it back over to you all. <laughs> we're all guilty of, in this collective socialization of manhood and the man box, we're all guilty of a few things. Three in particular that are woven into our socialization. That women and girls, we're taught as men, and we pass this down to our boys, that women and girls are seen as having less value than men and boys, right? That's why anywhere in the United States, I see a six-year-old boy uh, being taught how to throw a football by his uncle, coach, big brother, father. That older man says to that little boy, you got to throw her in that, son. You throw like a... Right. right. Everybody knows the answer to that. Yeah. Everyone does. It doesn't mean I believe it, but I know the answer, so I've been socialized in that way because it's not true, but I've been socialized. So less value. The other is that we're taught that women on some level are the property of men. That's why, again, anywhere in mainstream United States, I saw a man hitting his wife or girlfriend right now today in 2023 with all that we know about domestic violence. And I walk over to him and say, knock it off. And he's going to tell me, mind your business. It doesn't matter if I'm in New York City or rural Texas. It's the same thing. Again, these are the lessons in patriarchy that get passed down. And then the final thing is around sexual objectification, that we're taught to sexually objectify women and girls. And we pass that down to our boys, so much so that if our boys don't sexually objectify a girl or don't show interest sexually in girls, we think there's something wrong with them, right? Imagine your audience has a 17-year-old young man in the high school in your community, wonderful young man, wouldn't harm a girl, and he decides to take a young woman out who's also 17 at the local high school. He's just going to a movie. He gets on a group text with a couple of his buddies and says, hey, I'm taking Kathy out to the movie. They give him a little crap for that because they're 17 years old, right? So he takes her to the movie, takes her back home. He's the perfect gentleman. He gets back on the group text and says, hey, guys, I'm back. Is the first thing those young men ask him is, how was the movie? No. no, they ask him something around conquest, something around did she put out all of the, well, where did they learn that from? They don't learn it from each other. They learn it from the generation above them. I'm not talking about the men who sexually assault women because, again, that's the minority of men. I'm talking about the men who are in their life like the men 
in my community, like in our audience, we've all been a part of this in some way with the best of intentions even, right? But harmful. I was just going to add to that, that for many men, even though it's there, it's almost like invisible, if that makes sense. Like that socialization is so ingrained that you have to bring voice to it for it to be seen. Yes. We like to say it's like the hum of the refrigerator, Dwayne, right? It's like, you don't even pay attention to it. Is the fridge on? And then you get close to the fridge and it's clearly on. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right? But it's in the air that we breathe. It's everywhere. That's why men are silent to it because we really don't see it. And our privilege and entitlement that a male-dominated patriarchal society allows us not to pay attention to it. When we pay attention to it is when it impacts women and girls in our life. That's when we pay attention to it, right? If I was with the dads in your audience, Marnie and Dwayne, and I asked them who have daughters, whether their daughter's two years old or 16, I guarantee you that if I asked them, has there ever been another man in their life who has seen them with their daughter, even a baby at two or three, an infant rather, a toddler, and then another man will say to him, you better get your shotgun ready. Well, that's not about our daughters. That's about our boys. That's about right. us saying to each other that, you know, it ain't safe out here for her because of us. <laughs> so you better get your shotgun ready. I'm just going to say, listening to you say that, as a woman, it makes me incredibly sad, right? And as a mom of a four and a half year old boy, terrified, because that's not who I want him to be. And as a woman, it feels... It just feels so awful, right? To know that that's how you can be looked at and that's how you can be seen in this world. These concepts, like as you're talking, I'm just so aware of how true they all are, how real they are, you know, how present they are in our culture, in our society. And like you said, it goes so often so ignored. And, you know, I was just thinking also about Dwayne and I, prior to COVID, did one of our couples workshops in Northern California, and we showed the video called to men with Tony, the TED talk. And I remember talking to Dwayne afterwards, and he seemed really emotional. I could mm -hmm. tell something was really weighing on him. And Dwayne is one of the most kind, emotional, open men I've ever known. In fact, that's what attracted me to him as a, as a friend and as a business partner when I met him. Um, he was very open. So he was having a hard time with that material, and I was confused by it because I thought, well, that's not you. What are you so upset about? And he really got that part about being complicit in some way, you know, and just looking at what that all meant for men. And, and it's just such a, I don't know, it's, just, it's such a complex topic. So I'm going to ask Dwayne, what was that about for you? if you don't mind. Oh, yeah, no. Well, I think it was exactly what we were talking and the comment I made earlier is that it's just so invisible. And then when you see it, you start to go, oh, man, I have a responsibility here to do something different, to be different. And it's like, I didn't like that I didn't see it in that way, if that makes sense, too. My own feelings of, as a man, being like, I, I don't want to be like that. I think that's what really happened for me in that moment. It's like a, a light bulb went on. Not that I didn't see it, but kind of like you see it in, in its clarity, I think, if that makes sense. Mm. Uh, I, I appreciate that. And Marnie, the good news is that there's a shift happening, that men are realizing that this ain't working for us either, right? <laughs> that it really isn't, that we want to be different, that we want our boys to be different as well. And Dwayne's reaction is not unusual, even with uh, the understanding and the awareness that you or I might have, Dwayne. It's still our socialization that we're still a part of it. And we all know that we're still a part of it. And that's why in post Me Too, men were back on their heels. Like men were really back on their heels when allegations started coming out from men. And then Me Too got the attention that it got where we're looking at now sexual harassment in the workplace, women being sexually objectified. There wasn't a man, I've done a lot of trainings in workplaces and every other setting really, wherever there's men and young men and boys are called to men, you can find us there. But what I found was, as we look at post Me Too awareness, I should say, because Me Too of course was 
established years ago by Tarana Burke, but then it was got this new energy and new life and this global phenomenon. But as I speak to men as well-meaning, and I'm putting that in quotes, and as positive and as, as uh, aware as some men might be, I can say with confidence that men were back on their heels a bit because of a couple things. One is because we know on some level that we're a part of the problem, that there isn't a man that I've met who hasn't either done something that sexually objectified a woman or witnessed another man doing something and sexually objectified a woman and didn't say anything. Well, let me frame it this way. I haven't met a man that hasn't either done something who has sexually objectified a woman and gotten away with it, or witnessed another man doing something or saying something and gotten away with it and said nothing about it. And I can say that with confidence because one of the ways that we prove that we're men in this hyper-masculine male socialization man box is to objectify a woman. So it's almost like you have to pass that test in order to get to the next phase, even though you may not want to, you may not like it, it may not feel good, but we also still remain silent, those kind of things. So this generation of men, we're being held accountable, right? This is also why we're back on our heels a bit. It's long overdue, but we're being held accountable for something men have always gotten away with. So we didn't even have language for it, right? Absolutely, Ted. Do you guys remember the movie from so many years ago? I think it was in the 80s um, with Jodie Foster. I'm having trouble remembering the Oh, The Accused. The Accused, yes. I hadn't thought about that movie in years, but as you were talking, it came back to me, and I just remembered that was a perfect example of showing, right, this concept of keeping your mouth shut. No one would talk, and this, this assault happened in a bar with lots of men and women. Mm-hmm. But challenging male entitlement, male privilege... That's a difficult thing. And it's the same thing as if a well-meaning white person challenging race with other white folks is not an easy thing. Yep. A man challenging uh, uh, gender or male entitlement and privilege is not an easy thing. It, you have to say, okay, I'm going to do this. I might offend some people. I might lose some friends. I might not be invited back, <laughs> but I need to say something here. Again, to the good news, Marnie is that I feel like there is a shift. I mean, we've, we're an organization that's been around for more than 20 years. You all are doing this podcast, having this conversation. There's a shift happening. There's an awareness that we have to do something different in order for us to move to the next level within our own civilization that's going to be respectful and honoring and valuing all people. And that's, that's what your message has always felt like to me. It is. It's that um, stepping out of that man box, being able to see it in such a concrete way, gives you the ability to step out of it. Like you said, the refrigerator, you're not even aware it's running. And it's so ingrained into male masculinity, this you know collective socialization of men that, yeah, it's, it's almost just invisible. So having a voice to it, I think is what we have to do. While also loving being a man and being male identified. Like, that's really important. Like, I don't want to not be a man. I love being a man. I love being a father. I love all that that brings, right? I love that. But I also know that how we've been taught to be men and how we pass that teaching down to our boys and everyone else has to respond to that, right? Because it's a male-dominated society. So as we objectify women, then... Women also, and our girls may feel like, oh, well, I have to show this because that's the way I'm going to be validated because right, right. they may not say I'm an object, but that's what is part of the response to, right, is what men say you need to be and do and those kinds of things. So that's shifting, and it's an important shift because, again, we can connect it to uh, death by suicide by men, that men are living five to six years less than women, all of these things that we're not asking for help. We don't go to the doctor to prevent things. We go because it's, a, it's an intervention that's needed, not to prevent things. All of these things are connected to that rigid notion, hyper-masculinity, that's, I don't know if it ever works, but it's certainly antiquated at this point. Right. You know, um, so, so, yeah. You know, Ted, you said um, two things that I'm interested in. One is that there's a shift happening. And even just this conversation, right, is it represents that shift. But you also said earlier in the conversation that some of the challenges that existed way back in 2010, is that when you said Tony did the, mm-hmm. um, the TED Talk? 
right? You said that some of those challenges a decade later, we still see. So I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to what those challenges are that, that you're still seeing. Well, I would say the challenges that the man box creates, which is that we're still taught that women and girls have less value than men and boys, even though, and I'm thinking about the men in the audience who are looking around and say, well, what are you talking about? Women have all these opportunities. My boss is a woman. My wife or my partner, she gets opportunities that I would never get. All of these different things. So yes, we might be able to look at one situation, but when we talk about systemic, there's still sexism, misogyny, male dominance. It's still alive and kicking. And actually, when progress is made, whether it's around gender or race, sexism, racism rear its ugly head to push it back down. So we often see that as well, right? So the issue of less value, women and girls having less value than men and boys is still very prevalent. Women as the property of men, women and girls as sexual objects, all of those things are still very relevant. And when we look at opportunities, the pay gap, all of these kinds of things, it still shows up that it's a male-dominated society that male privilege and entitlements are still very much in place. As these systems and structures are challenged, they become more sophisticated. So they don't necessarily go away, they become more sophisticated, and that's what we're seeing. But we're also seeing much more awareness, which is really good. So we have a lot more to do, and we really need men's voices, right? Because that's what's missing. The voice of men is what's missing. If we looked at domestic violence or sexual assault, If women could have ended domestic violence and sexual assault, they would have, right? They don't have the responsibility to end it because they're not the ones perpetrating it. And the same thing around race. If black folks could end racism, trust me, we would have. So it really has to be those people benefiting from the structure, from the status quo, have to say, we have to look at ourselves and what do we need to do to make things different, equitable, fair, respectful, and valued. So That's really what has not changed is that it's still a male-dominated society, even though there's many shifts happening in many places, but we have much more work to do, that's for sure. And one of the differences is, though, I think that gender is talked about in a much different way than it was, say, 12 years ago. I think about the children in my life, for instance, the topic of non-binary 10, 12 years ago, you know, I I don't think I knew what it meant, really, (laughs) right? I mean, in the context of gender in the same way that we understand it now. So the gender expansiveness, the fluidity, it's not that that wasn't always there. It was, but people are feeling free and able to express that more. And that's one thing that's changed, and I think, for the better, because it's all about being our authentic selves. And if that's who a person is authentically, then we need to be able to embrace that and not be threatened by it because men and heterosexism and homophobia threaten that. That's why you'll see dads shake their son's hand to congratulate him at 20 years old instead of giving him a hug where he'll hug his daughter throughout the rest of his life. Those kinds of things you know, are, are really challenges that we want to overcome because as men and fathers, we miss out on so much because of these rigid notions of manhood. We really do. Yeah. And going back to that where you don't see it, because I'm thinking of my own kids and, you know, I have a boy and a girl and some of those responses I can find myself firing off before I I have to kind of consciously go, wait a minute, what am I doing here? I don't have to fall into this box. And you give a hopeful message because I see it the same way. I see these new generations coming up with a broader perspective, not maybe our age locked in where it was so Mm -hmm. ingrained into our masculinity, but I'm, I'm see, I am, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, this younger generation come up and be just more open. And I think that's yeah. really exciting. Yeah. They're not having it. They're not having it, which is good. You know, that's <laughs> you know, what needs to happen. I mean, like, good. Thank the Lord. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, because like you yeah. said earlier, the man box really traps us into a very lonely space oh. and there's freedom yes. in being able to be yourself, be a full human being beyond this kind of isolating construct that keeps you from connecting to others. Very lonely space. Yeah. Well, we're not sharing what pain we're going through. Yeah. It's very lonely. That's something that is so important to talk about because when I grew up, I'll be honest with you guys, I think I also believed some of these messages that men are a certain way. Men are strong. Men are the providers or the breadwinners, which is interesting because my mother was, he worked full time and absolutely participated in all of that. But I definitely had some of those messages and I thought it was biological. 
I thought that men, because of biology, were that way, more dominating, right? Um, Less emotional, all of those things. And then I had my son. And what I've noticed is that he absolutely has the same feelings than anybody else, a girl, whoever has. And at this age, he's allowed to show it, right? He's allowed. It's sort of normalized. But what that did, that I started to think about all this. Plus, I have all the knowledge from my understanding of the man box, right? And the socialization of men. I started to see that they get trained and socialized out of being who they really are. It's not that men don't have fear and pain and emotions. It's that they're taught not to let it out. Like you said, not to be authentic. And by the way, you know, we work with relationships. It's a perfect example of looking at how men don't necessarily show up in an authentic way in a relationship. You need to be vulnerable in order to be authentic. And when you're not that, how do you really connect? How are you really intimate? How do you have a true connected, secure, functioning relationship with somebody when you're not able to be your authentic self. Okay. There's so many things I want to address, if I could. Please. So first of all, we stop our boys from experiencing those feelings, right? We tell them to stop crying. And we tell them to stop crying, we're actually saying stop feeling because he doesn't know the difference, right? We're taught that our boys aren't supposed to experience those kind of feelings, sadness, disappointment. They're supposed to suck it up, walk it off, man up, all of these other things where we allow our girls to express whatever they want to express for as long as they need to express it. So they develop language. They develop their processing. Our boys don't do that. So they grow up to be men who can't process when they're going through challenges in their relationship also. And at the same time, when those little boys are feeling disappointment, rejection, hurt, pain, all those things, we don't give them that time to talk about it, process it, all of those things, right? So now when they grow up, they don't want to be hurt. They don't want to be rejected. So we'll put these walls up in our relationship and maybe even not treat people with full respect because of, well, I'm not going to let that person get put so close to me. I'm going to give them this amount of information and not that amount of information or how, you know, whatever that means for that particular man. So these behaviors, though, are not embedded in our DNA. So it's not biological, which you've learned. It's embedded in our socialization. Because if we let our boys experience and share all that they share, and I tried to do that with my sons, they could cry, they could do all these things, and then they also have language around it, and they can talk to me. Now, this is not, and I'm thinking about the parents right now, I'm not talking about a kid who didn't get what he wants, and we just say, oh, okay, cry, let it out, it's okay. I'm not talking about a kid who's just, you know, you turned off the technology and they're having a fit, and, you know, you, know, you can send them to their room and let them have that fit there, but I'm not saying, come here, let me hold you while you're experiencing that. It's okay, we're, you know, we're, we're putting up healthy boundaries here. But I am talking about when a kid is in pain, disappointment, hurt, those many things. So we want them to work through those feelings. So we're not saying let's avoid those feelings. We want them to work through them, but we want them to talk about it, put language to it, all of those things, and not demean them, shame them for feeling that way, or connect them to being less than who they are, which in this socialization is a girl. Like, don't act like a little girl, right? Or don't act like uh, you're less than a man, right? All of those things that are gender-based and wrong that push boys into this man box. And you also mentioned being a provider, being a protector. Like, there's some wonderful things about manhood, but they're not exclusive to men. And when we unpack this with men, like being a provider, women are providing certainly as much as men are providing, right? What does provision look like? Even if, let's say, he is the one who may be going out and has a full-time job that's paying, she has a full-time job at home, she's providing as well. When we unpack strength, if I'm with a group of men and I ask them, if we take the physical ability of how much you can lift, how many things you can move in a certain amount of time, if we remove that physical ability of strength, and then we look at all other areas of strength, you know more strong women than strong men. 100% of them say strong women. And then if we look at physical capability, though a man can bench press 250 pounds and maybe his wife cannot, 
But if we look at physical capability of his wife, who just gave birth, she has three children. I was just going to say that. I was hoping you were going there. I'm like, like, how much can you bench press, bro? Like, 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 does that really even compare? Now, that's not saying that women are better than men, but they certainly aren't less than men. And that's what our, that's again, what male domination patriarchy teaches us. We've all been taught the wrong thing. We're swimming in the same water. What we've learned around gender, race, class has been passed down to us, right? So we've inherited all of it. But now that we know that, it's really our responsibility to, okay, so what do I need to do to make the world, my family, our community a better place? Absolutely. I want to say that we're talking here today about the socialization of men, but we have a lot of women in our audience that listen. You know, many are betrayed partners. So I want to be clear that women also get socialized. You know, um, I was just thinking about how girls that want to play sports or want to get their hands dirty and all that kind of stuff, they're labeled tomboys. I'd never thought that in my entire life until this conversation. I never thought about that term tomboy. So for a girl to be engaging in certain things that make her feel good, she's called something that has the word boy in it. And that's like, my God. So I just wanted to acknowledge that because it's clear that this is an an issue that impacts both genders. It really is. And you bring up a great point. When I've talked to men about, again, living in this man box and deconstructing it and even dismantling it, men have said, look, I know the woman in my life wants me to be a certain way, right? Because she's taught that those attributes in the man box are what you want to aspire to, not only if you're a man, but if you're a woman, this is what you want to see in the man that you, you don't want somebody who's going to be emotional, let's say, who's going to share that they're hurt and that this and that. But as you said, women and girls are socialized in the same way. Um, So, you know, no one's immune from it. Again, we're all swimming in the same water. And it goes in many different directions. It goes for girls like the tomboy. And then those who don't necessarily fit the binary, there's all kinds of issues there as well. I mean, I remember, so I have um, two children who identify as queer. And that word, for instance, when I grew up, wasn't a word that that was seen as an offense. That was seen as disrespectful. That was, seen, that was fighting words. But now it is not. Language has changed, right? It's even empowering for, certainly for Jalen, whose pronouns are they and them, they identify as queer, right? So there's so much that doesn't necessarily line up with what we've been taught about manhood, masculinity, womanhood, and femininity. There's so much. And all of us actually are fluid within that space. Myself and all the men who are listening to this as well, we have not done things in our lives that have been of interest to us, we've avoided it or we said, no, I'm not going to do that because if I do, someone will think that I'm X, Y, or Z. Your audience won't be able to see this, but you always will see in the video, you see flowers over my shoulder. I always have flowers in the house. I have probably three other bouquets of flowers throughout the house, almost in every room. I love flowers, but it took me a good number of years in my marriage to accept that I like flowers. I would actually bring flowers home for my wife, you know, presenting it to her. Here you go, here's flowers, boom, boom, boom. She'd like it, she'd be, oh, that's nice, you know. But if (laughs) if I didn't bring flowers home, she wasn't really looking for flowers. She didn't think that it didn't, that it meant I didn't love her if there weren't flowers. You know, when flowers went in the house, who missed them was me. Right. Mm -hmm. I miss the colors, I miss the smell, I miss all of it. So now, I went through most of my adult life not tapping into my full authentic self because my authentic self loves flowers. Missing out on a lot. This is my point. Missing out on a lot that as men, we're so much more than what that man box dictates. So we're missing out on a lot. And as dads, and I want to speak to the dads specifically around kids who are gender non-binary, we're missing out on a lot when we try to stop them from being who they are, when we don't give them a sense of full belonging, when we're uncomfortable meeting their friends, we're missing out on so many things. So I just want to put that as a word of encouragement to parents. As you were talking, I was thinking of another point too. You grow up with all this messaging and you were saying earlier, especially around 
emotions where you, you you don't learn to be able to express them. So now you're in your adult life and you have to unlearn all of these automatic responses to shut your emotions down or to make sure you express your masculinity in the appropriate way. So ingrained. And then you're trying to have an intimate, meaningful relationship and you're stuck with this deficit because you didn't learn these skills. You didn't learn your emotional uh, life. You didn't learn how you experience emotions in your body. And if you've, if you're in the realm of you've betrayed your partner, now you're trying to repair without any of these skills and you don't even know how to do it. It's, uh, and I would think that as you're trying to repair, you're also experiencing the emotions of guilt, frustration, because it's not repairing as quickly as you might like. Part of that socialization is that we're taught that, okay, do this and solve the problem, right? Where women generally have more of a process. It's not that simple, (laughs) right? It's a process, step by step by step by step. But we're taught that that process is uncomfortable for us. (laughs) What do I need to do to solve the problem? And now we're missing the whole point of building that back, the relationship back, building the trust back. I just made a little video with one of the coaches that works for our, our coaching organization about something that really speaks to what you're saying right now, which is most of the men that come to us for help after betraying their partner, they say in words, I will do whatever it takes, right, to fix this, to heal this, whatever it is, I'm all in. And then their actions or non-actions, I should say, really say something very different. And right, they're not doing the work. But this is interesting because what is the work? It's usually becoming a man who has integrity, a man who does express his feelings, right? A man who is vulnerable and knows how to be intimate and be their most authentic present self. That's the work. And, you know, to me, I always say, it's not that hard. I don't say this to them. Well, now they're all hearing it, but it's not that hard, but that's because that's who I am. And it comes easier to me. And I was taught that. So I, I have so much compassion for the men who, well, all men, I have so much compassion for all men as we're talking about this. And, you know, it's a really tough thing for all of our clients, both the ones who've done the betrayal and the ones who've been betrayed, because the ones who've done the betraying are dealing with all of these in some way. I'm not using it as an excuse by any means. They have to take responsibility and there's consequences mm-hmm. of their actions. But there are these dynamics that have played a big role in how they've shown up as men. And, you know, and I feel for the women who have experienced the pain of being hurt by these people who have, you know, experienced all of this collective socialization. So it's created so much pain and so much trauma. Yeah. And, you know, I think as men are willing to do whatever it takes, as long as it's not emotionally painful (laughs) or uncomfortable to go through, because it's like, okay, do I need to take her away? Do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? No, it's actually, you need to share what's going on. And to the women in the audience who might have a male identified partner who she's like very frustrated with, he won't tell me how he's feeling. Yeah, he doesn't know how he's feeling. Like that's the frustration for him as well. If you ask him how he's feeling, he's probably gonna say, I feel like I wish you'd stop asking me how I'm feeling yes. because he doesn't really have the language. So, you know, again, because that little boy never got time to talk about what he's going through. So we keep pushing it off, pushing it off and pushing it off, meaning talking about the pain that we're in. And then we get into these relationships that a man might be causing harm in and he really doesn't know how to talk through it. Other than, and I want to encourage, and I know you all do, oftentimes men might say, well, okay, maybe couples therapy, or even maybe the partner, she says couples therapy, and that could be cool, but he needs therapy of his own because he really needs to be able to talk about his own process and all of that pain. And we're also taught, part of that socialization is misogyny. Like, we're taught that. While a man, of course, may love the woman he's partnered with, he's also taught not to have value for her and maybe even to dislike some of the things that she represents. Like that's what we're taught in our socialization. That's difficult to say, but I think there's some truth to that. Yeah. I was just thinking like learning these skills. We, we run a lot of men's groups of men who, you know, have betrayed their partner. It's amazing every time to watch these men come together in that supportive 
environment and untangle all of this stuff. Men want to untangle this stuff when they're given that safe space to do it. And the bonding that comes out of that is just, it just always blows me away. And these men, for sometimes these groups, is the first place they feel like they have any relationship. And it's like, it's so sad for me. Or any opportunity, Dwayne, any opportunity to form a relationship. Yeah, they haven't had that. And it's amazing to watch them just mutually untangle it and be better men. It's just, it blows me away. I'm so happy to hear that they have that space with you all because we find the same thing, that men are thirsty for these conversations, but they haven't had the safe space to share it. And when they might have brought it up, other men look at them a little side-eyed like there's something wrong with them. Because if you're going to share vulnerably, then that means somehow you're not a man that somehow you're like a woman or that you're not living up to these messages and images and expectations of manhood that we're supposed to. And that's what's literally killing us. Like, you know, whether it's anxiety and depression, death by suicide, high risk behavior, addiction, all of those other things. So we have the same experience, Dwayne, that when men have the space to share, they are happy to share and they see the benefit of it. And they recognize that, oh, wait, being vulnerable is actually a very strong thing to yeah. be. <laughs> like you want to talk about that strength, strength. <laughs> share some emotion and some vulnerability. That shares some strength. But men respect strength. So when they see other men do that, then they say, oh, wow, okay, I really respect that. After we show Tony's video in our workshops, it's the only time in our workshop, it's a two-day workshop, where people are speechless. They don't speak. You know, when we turn it off, we hit stop after the end of the video where it's quiet and nobody really knows yet what to say. And then the conversation just, whoa, you know, it opens up and we can spend the entire workshop just kind of focused on this. But I did want to ask because I want to be respectful of time. And by the way, I think I speak for both Dwayne and myself when I say we can talk to you for hours. We feel, I think, equally as passionate about the work that you're doing how important it is. Um, But because our podcast is focused on helping couples heal after betrayal, I'd love to be able to ask you a couple of very targeted questions for our audience. And the first would be, based on your experience and all of the research you've done over all of these years, how does the socialization of men play a part in infidelity and porn addiction and betrayal in relationships? Well, I think that for those who engage in those things, right, that interfere with their relationship. Again, the we mentioned it earlier, the entitlement and the privilege that men have, right, that women are there to serve them in some way, that they're really truly not equal to them in the sense of real respect and value, and that women on some level are even, you know, disposable in some ways, right? Like, I mean, I've heard men say, uh, there's more fish in the sea, you know, those, those kind of things. When somebody breaks up with someone he cares about, we don't talk about the breakup. Don't go into the emotion of that. Oh, man, that, that sucks. You know, there's more fish in the sea. Let me buy you a drink. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's the end of it, right? Opposed to talking about, like, what happened? How do you feel? What do you think you want to do? All of those things, you know, must be very painful. All of that kind of thing. So I think that how we're taught, our all male privilege and entitlement around relationships with women. Um, I think the porn piece is a problematic piece for a number of reasons, because what it really does is really does teach men that women are objects because they're literally objectified. And by the way, where I talked about in the beginning around the man box, the issue of less value, the issue of property and the issue of sexual objectification In porn, they all meet at the same time. It's played out in the same time. Property, objectification, and less value. And it's also, though, I think a safe place for men to experience women without having the emotional connection or the responsibility or any accountability and all of those things. So it is an interaction with a woman without the responsibility of the relationship or accountability of the woman. Right. So I think that that's a piece of it also that then dehumanizes that experience as well. Again, objectification. So I think that those things can be problematic. The other thing around porn is that it really does 
disconnect men from their hearts. And it disconnects our boys from their hearts as well. So there was a research study done, I'm not sure, I believe it was through Harvard a few years ago, where they did research and estimated that 80% of all fifth grade boys have already seen pornography. Mm. Which I believe because you can just put in porn on the phone and it'll come up, right? So even if as a parent I have safety measures on my kid's phone and on the technology in the house, when he's in school with Johnny and Johnny says, oh, you haven't seen this? And now he's looking at it. And it's not, you know, Dwayne, I'm older than you, but the porn that I saw as an 11-year-old or 12-year-old was my uncle's magazine that looks like Victoria's Secret's ads in the mall. Right, I mean, yeah. that was it, right? <laughs> Which was, at that time, I guess bad enough, but nothing like now. It's extreme. It's only abusive, degrading, humiliating, misogynistic, male-dominant, abusive with language, behavior, all of those things. So if our boys think that that's sex, and then we're not having conversations with them as dads, in particular, as men in their lives, whether it's dads or or just having a young man in your life, we have to have these conversations around consent. I know this doesn't answer your question, Marnie, but this is really important. Most of our boys, high school boys, we've done a research around this with our Live Respect curriculum. Uh, only 19% of boys that we surveyed, and they were from all different groups, could define consent. Eight out of 10 boys could not, which explains a lot. It explains sexual assault in the military. It explains sexual assault on college campuses. It explains why girls and women between 16 and 24 are the highest risk for being sexually assaulted. Our boys think no means try harder or get her drunk because we don't have conversations with them. We think there are kids that are going to do the right thing, but that's not necessarily true, especially when there's other boys who are saying, oh no, you need to do this too. So I do think that it's, it's in the socialization where we look at patriarchy, when we look at male dominance, all of those things are factors as it relates to porn, infidelity, not respecting women enough to be honest and true with them, those kind of things. Think about it, are you gonna be dishonest with the men in your life that you respect about something that's important to them? I don't know if it would be the same. You definitely did answer the question. I'm interested in talking about the impact that it has on people and on relationships. And you really touched on all of that. And the the part that's so disturbing is that that is how young boys are learning, like you said, about sex and sexuality. And learning that what they're seeing in pornography is women pretending or acting like they like what's going on and what's happening to them. They like being degraded. They like being humiliated, right? They like being dominated. And maybe sometimes in their own fantasies, maybe. There might be some women who do. But pornography is showing that this is women across the board, and this is how women like to be treated sexually. And it's very problematic. And I do know that the experience of our listeners, where there has been a lot of pornography in the relationship on the part of the the man in the relationship, has impacted tremendously their own ability to be sexual in that relationship and feeling like they've been treated like the way that their husband or their partner has what they've seen on in porn, right? They've seen the stuff in porn. It turns them on. It's exciting to them. And so then they turn to their partner and they want them to engage in those same behaviors. And that's really painful. Mm -hmm. And so disconnected to the individual person. Yeah. So the important question, what do boys need to learn to change the trajectory of violence against women, including domestic abuse and betrayal? So what our boys need to learn is they need to witness other men who are doing just that. They need to witness men, men in their lives, men in social media, male influencers who are speaking out around healthy, respectful manhood and masculinity, because that's what's going to shift the culture. And that's really what we need to do. So it really isn't up to the boys. It's really up to the generation above them. We can't put the responsibility on them. It's really up to the generation above them that we as men and young men have to say, okay, what's working and what's not working? And this is what we want to pass down to our boys. And even in our own families, because I know you have a young four and a half year old, I think you said, and, mm-hmm. and Dwayne, I know you have children and, and so do I. And no matter what they're taught, they're still going out to the world to get these messages around this socialization we're talking about. So there's times where 
as aware as and conscious as my kids might be around certain things, they're still coming back home with these ideas and images or thoughts, not images, but the ideas and thoughts around, uh, well, images of manhood that are different from what I'm teaching them. I, you know, I have to go in and it's like Tony sometimes says, you got to do a tune-up, you know, you got to do alter this, change that, <laughs> you know, take this out, repair that, all of those things. But we actually have to give tune-ups all the time, even though they're living with us, they're getting these messages elsewhere. So our culture really needs to change and give boys a different message, one that promotes healthy masculinity from their perspective. I just want to thank you, Ted, for leading that and doing that and bringing that message to make that change, because it definitely had a shift in my life and for my son to be able to see these things. It's just incredibly meaningful to me. So thank you. Thank you, Dwayne. Appreciate you. I'm so excited about sharing some of this stuff in your little book with my own son and getting him started really young. And for our listeners, to learn more about this and to learn about how they can change the language and how can they help their own boys and how, you know, how do we change the trajectory? Where could they go? Where could they learn more and read more? Yes. Thank you, Marnie, so much for this opportunity. And thank you, Dwayne. So all of our social media is at a call to men. That's uh, IG, Twitter, Facebook, and I'm Ted.Bunch. I'm at Ted.Bunch on IG as well. But A Call to Men is really where I would direct you first. And then also the website, acalltomen.org, is where you find lots of information, video, information, the work that we're doing, how people can get more involved, things that they can participate in, all of those things. And the book you mentioned, The Book of Dares, 100 Ways for Boys to Be Kind, Bold, and Brave, can be found on Amazon. Thank you for listening to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, where your healing is the number one priority. If you'd like additional resources about betrayal trauma or to learn more about the workshop, please visit helpingcouplesheal.com. If you're finding the podcast helpful, please support Marnie and Duane in continuing to reach others impacted by betrayal trauma by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast with someone you care about. Once again, thank you for listening. We're grateful for your trust and look forward to continuing to support you on your journey of healing.